Man, that's a lousy song. <laughs> How can he give us like 10 verses and say, oh, you might not like it? Who's going to admit that? This is not happening, is it? If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to 1 Thessalonians 2. We're actually going to start in the second chapter, verses 1 to 12, and then next week we'll go back to the first. 1 Thessalonians 2, we'll look at verses 1 to 12. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, we thank you for your inspired and errant word. We thank you that we have the book of 1 Thessalonians that we can learn more about your character, more about how we ought to think and how we ought to respond, how we ought to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Father, take your inspired and errant word and apply it to our lives to transform us for our betterment and your great glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. From 1924 to 1931, we were at the back end of Prohibition that ended in 1933. As you probably know, Prohibition was that time in the United States where drinking alcohol was not allowed, making alcohol, serving alcohol was not allowed. It was during this time that the unit in Chicago emerged a mob group, and it began to be strong, and for seven years, it was led by Al Capone, Scarface. And you remember that Capone escaped the authorities because he had forged a relationship with the mayor, Mayor Thompson, but even more than that, he had an incredible accountant named Easy Eddie. Easy Eddie was brilliant, and he had figured out a way of leaving Capone's name off of all documents, of making sure that any crime committed would not come back to Capone. And Capone was filled with violence. His mob was filled with violence. They were bootleggers with alcohol, they brought in a lot of prostitution, but nothing could be tagged on Capone. And because Easy Eddie had done such a great job of this, Capone paid him handsomely. So Easy Eddie lived the high life. He lived the good life. Anything he wanted, he had. But there was something more important to Easy Eddie than the good life. There was something he loved more than money. He loved his son. And he wanted his son to have a good reputation, a good last name. He wanted his son to have good morals. But if you're a parent or a grandparent, you and I know all too well that we can't pass on to another that which we're not embracing ourselves. If we want our children and grandchildren to have a better chance of walking worthy of the gospel, they need to see it lived out in us. And so Easy Eddie made a decision. He decided he would testify against Capone. He knew that it would come with a great cost. Immediately he would lose his income, but almost certainly he believed he would go out in a blaze of glory 
And within a year, he was murdered. But he gave his son a good name. That's example number one. Example number two is of Butch O'Hare, Commander Butch O'Hare. If you know anything about Commander Butch O'Hare, you know we go back to February 20, 1945. He's part of the carrier group called the Lexington in the South Pacific. He's a naval aviator. One particular day, they had a long mission. They had a long sortie. He brought his squadron up. They started out, and somewhere along the path, he looked at his fuel gauge, and he realized he did not have enough fuel to get all the way out to engage the enemy and come back. And so he had some tough choices to make. And he sent the squadron on ahead, and by himself, he returned to the carrier group Lexington. But on the way back, he encountered nine Japanese heavy bombers. He knew that the Lexington fleet was now without defense. All the fighters were out on the sortie. It was him against nine. And with his 50 millimeters blazing, he dove on them, and he continued to dive on them, shooting at them until he had expended every single bullet. But the enemy was still heading towards the Lexington. So he began to ram the other planes with his own, hitting his wings against their wings. And at some point, the Japanese pilot said, this guy is nuts. And they broke off the attack and headed back. And Butch O'Hare barely made it back to the Lexington, landed, and the cameras mounted under the 50 millimeters told the story. He had downed five of the nine planes. He had become, overnight, the first naval ace. He also became the first naval aviator in World War II to be given the Congressional Medal of Honor. Eleven months later, he led his squadron in the darkness of night, the first night sortie off an aircraft carrier. He didn't make it back. The end of the war in 1945, the Navy named a destroyer, the USS O'Hare. In 1949, the Orchard Depot Airport in Chicago renamed itself. O'Hare Airport, a man who walked worthy, an American hero. Oh, one more thing. His father was Easy Eddie. His father had given him values, a backbone, morals, and a good name. And that's exactly what Paul wants to do with us today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Let's pick up in our text and read God's word. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God, 
in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. But we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle. Gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and his glory. Paul alludes to our setting in verses 1 and 2. Paul is on the second of three missionary journeys. The year is AD 50. The events are recorded for us in Acts 16 and 17. Paul has been in the northern eastern corner of Macedonia or Greece, basically on the Turkish border. He tells us in verse 2 that they were not treated well in Philippi. That's an understatement. If you know anything about the gospel work in Philippi, while he's there, the Philippian jailer and his family come to Christ. Praise the Lord. God is on the move. Lydia and her household, this dyer of purple, she and her household come to Christ. God is on the move. And yet you remember that the offense of the gospel, salvation by faith in Christ alone, in no other, is so offensive that Paul needs to flee for his life. He needs to flee under the cover of darkness, or he will be murdered for the faith in AD 50. And so Paul leaves Philippi, and he begins to head south down the Aegean Sea. He's going to go 50 miles a little less than halfway to the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica is on the Via Ignatia. It's on the east-west Roman road. Because of that, it's a population center. At least a quarter million people live in Thessalonica during the time in which Paul is there. And Paul begins to do gospel work he begins to proclaim salvation by faith in Christ alone and in no other, not in the Greek pantheon, not in the Roman pantheon, not in good works, but in faith and salvation in Christ alone. And you remember his work in Thessalonica is rather short. It's 21 days, three weeks, and Paul is run out of Thessalonica. He needs to fear for his life if he doesn't lead Thessalonica, he will be a martyr for the faith. And yet we read in Acts 17, the fourth verse, that many came to Christ. God was on the move, and a church was born, 
And a series of churches will emerge because God moved through a man named Paul who sought to walk worthy of the gospel. Paul says this about himself in verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. I love this about Paul. I love this about many of you. Paul serves for an audience of one rather than an audience of many. Paul lives for an audience of one rather than to serve himself, which is really a people pleaser, to get people to like him, to give people to respect him, to get people to give him accolades. Paul is going to serve for an audience of one. Imagine what that would look like. You might get up in the morning and you say, you know what? I'm going to dress for an audience of one. That's why I don't wear ties and jackets. That's why I'm dressed like a bumblebee today. It's for an audience of one. Imagine we think about that relationship that has gone south, that individual who rubs us the wrong way, who is irritating, you know the one, and yet we're not going to give in to the audience of many to the gossip or the slander. We're not going to give in to the audience of self. We want to live for an audience of one, and that dictates how we talk. It dictates what we say to one another because we live for an audience of one. It has everything to do with what we do with our resources, our time, what God has entrusted to us because we're not in this for the many. We're in it for the one. But you know, it's more than just what we do. It's why we do it. You think of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were lay leaders, three to 4,000 during the time of Christ. And the Pharisees did just about everything right. When the Old Testament law said do, they do. When the Old Testament law said don't, they don't. Now they added about 10,000 of their own laws to it. You know, God's a liberal. He only had 613 laws. They needed to add a little bit to it. But they were all about doing and don't doing. In fact, they actually tied their mint and dill. That means they tithed what was in the garden. If your garden looks like mine, it wouldn't be much of a tithe. I don't have much growing yet. But they tied their mint and their dill. And God said, do, and they did. And God said, don't. And they didn't. And what did Jesus say? He said, you guys are whitewashed sepulchers. You look good on the outside, but you're decrepit, decaying bones on the inside. You're broods of vipers. Because a living relationship with the living God is more about do's and don'ts. It's about the motives. It's about the attitude that you and I put on to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel to live for an audience of one rather than an audience of many is all about motives. It's all about attitudes. It's living for the Lord. Paul went to Philippi and he preached the gospel and it was so offensive. They drove him out. They didn't treat him well, verse two. In Thessalonica, he was there for 21 days and they drove him out because of the offense of the gospel. 
In the same region, just a little bit over from Philippi, a little bit above Thessalonica, you have the Galatia region where Paul probably planted several different churches. You remember when Paul was in the Galatia region, there was a group of Jews that followed him. Historically, we have called them Judaizers. Judaizers are Jews that taught salvation by faith in Christ plus plus circumcision, plus a kosher kitchen, plus adherence to the 613 Levitical laws. It would have been easy for Paul to say, you know what? Pretty close. Let's work together. I'll rub your back, you rub mine. But you remember what Paul said in Galatians 1, 8, 9? He said, if I were to preach the gospel, if angels from heaven were to preach a gospel other than that which we have already preached, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed. Because there's something more important than popularity. There's something more important than the audience. It's the glory of God and the the truthfulness of one way to heaven. And you remember what Paul said in Galatians 1 verse 10, the next verse. He said, we did not come to please man, but to please God. We are not man pleasers. We are God pleasers. That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And that's what Paul did. Paul warns us that if we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, and we live out the truth of salvation by faith in Christ alone, and we live out the truth of the 66 inspired and errant word, people are not going to appreciate it. It's not that we try and alienate people. That's weird. That's not kind. But when we stand for truth, we will alienate people. Paul put it this way in uh, uh, 2 Timothy 3.12. He said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All Pass upon it, 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 means, it means all. John put it this way in 1 John 3, 13. Do not be surprised, brethren, that the world hates you. Again, we're not looking for the world to hate us. We're not looking to alienate people. But we are looking to stand firm. That means sometimes we have to stand against the culture. What does the culture say? It's a pluralistic culture. As long as you have sincerity, you'll get to heaven. As long as you have enough good works, you'll get to heaven. As long as you're baptized, you'll get to heaven. As long as you take communion, you'll get to heaven. And the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved For the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's so countercultural, but the Bible is adamant one way. The Bible is adamant about morality. We redefine morality all the time, we redefine marriage. It took God two chapters to get to marriage. He said, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, and the man and the woman were both naked and not ashamed. We live in a culture that kind of wants to curb the truthfulness of God. 
We've just come off of July 4th, the day in which we celebrate wonderfully, celebrate our independence. But we are the drunkest state in the union. And we could say, you know, it's not that big a deal. Except Ephesians 5.18 says, do not be drunk with wine. It's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. And our culture is all about saying it doesn't matter if you just lighten up a little bit. And Paul says, if we proclaim something other than that which we have proclaimed, let us be anathema. Living right is living according to the book. Paul says living right as we share the gospel, living right as we nurture other new believers is sometimes living like a nursing mother. Okay, that is weird, but let me read it again. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8. He says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Part of living in a manner worthy of the gospel, part of living for an audience of one rather than an audience of many, is to be like a nursing mother. Now, obviously, I'm kind of not qualified to talk on this issue. But I've taught a number of leadership courses here in the church with both men and women. And when I've taught them, I've always, always brought us to 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 to 12. And I've said to the women, talk to us about being a nursing mother. And I've written down probably two or three dozen characteristics that have been given to me over the years. I want to share a few of them. A nursing mother is gentle. A nursing mother is nurturing. A nursing mother gives of herself. A nursing mother needs to feed herself in order to feed her child. Now think about that when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to discipling others. We need to be self-feeders. We need to be in the word. We need to be in prayer. We need to be aligned with the Lord in order to feed others. A nursing mother needs to make wise choices in order to make wise choice for her baby. We as disciples, we as evangelists need to make wise choices. Sometimes nursing mothers need to give things up. Maybe spicy foods, maybe alcohol need to give things up. And Romans 14 says that sometimes we actually give up our own liberties in order to reach a world that is lost. That's what a nurturing, nurturing mother is like. I remember a number of years ago, uh, a guy was interacting with some people of a denomination, a Christian denomination that he strongly disagreed with. And he probably had some very valid points. But he was doing it on email, and for whatever reason, he put like 40 of us on the email. And he was filled with hatred and bitterness and vitriol. And I read this with embarrassment and shame, and I thought, man, even when I agree with him, I disagree with him. Do you think he won the individual over? 
He didn't win any of us over. Most of us wanted to go to the heretical side just because of him. But I wonder what would have happened if in the same process he had gone one-on-one, didn't email 40 of us, didn't make it this massive chain letter, left out the hatred and the vitriol and shared with love and compassion like a nursing mother. I wonder what would have happened. Would he have won these people over to the truthfulness of the gospel because it was a gospel-driven conversation? I think he drove the people further from the gospel, not brought them to the gospel. Paul says that when we're engaged in ministry, gospel ministry, which is what the text is all about, and ministry to new believers, sometimes you and I need to be like a nursing mother, gentle and nurturing and sacrificial, giving of oneself. Did Paul do that? Oh boy, did he ever. Let me read just one list of the sacrifices Paul made on behalf of the gospel for God's glory. He said this in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 28. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. He's referring to some people who are acting like apostles and they're really not. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jew the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and dangers from rivers. Dangers from robbers. Dangers from my own people. Dangers from Gentiles. Dangers in the city. Dangers in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Dangerous, danger from false brothers, in toil, in hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. This is what he gave up. Like a nursing mother, this is what he gave up for the sake of the gospel. And remember, Paul writes 1 Corinthians in AD 56. He doesn't die in the Mamertine prison until AD 66. So the last 10 years of his sacrifice, they don't make the list. His martyrdom doesn't make the list. And this is what he sacrifices. And sometimes for the sake of the gospel, sometimes to walk worthy of the manner of the gospel, sometimes to live for an audience of one rather than an audience of many, you and I need to sacrifice for God. In this regard, I think of Cheryl Anderson At age 29, Cheryl and her husband Lee were so excited. They were going to be pregnant for the very first time. So excited. Two months into the pregnancy, Cheryl was diagnosed with a very severe, very aggressive form of cancer. The doctors told her she needed to abort to have any chance of living. She said no. Plan B was heavy cocktails of chemotherapy and radiation. But she feared for the child in her womb, and she said no. And daily, in excruciating pain, she took nothing. Her goal at this point was to bring this child to term. She knew she would not live. At six months, the doctors sawing her slip away said, we need to do an emergency C-section. 
And they took the baby out and she held Taylor. And while her husband held her, she nursed the baby as she slipped into eternity. That's the love of a maternal, nurturing, nursing mother. And Paul says, as part of the gospel message, as part of nurturing up young believers, many times we need to be like that nursing mother with tenderness, with care, with gentleness, with self-sacrifice, with giving up our own rights in order to advance the gospel, to walk worthy of the manner of the gospel, to serve for an audience of one rather than an audience of many. But Paul says sometimes you're not going to be like a nursing mother. Sometimes you're going to be like a father. Let me read verses 11 and 12. Paul writes this. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Fathers kind of handle things a little different than mothers in many homes. Mothers nurture, fathers sometimes push. It's fathers that sometimes says, you know, enough of this nonsense. It's time to get going. Sometimes fathers are the discipliners. When mom says, wait till your father gets home, she's probably not talking about a trip to the ice cream store. Dads are the ones that say, you know what? It's time you do what you need to do. It's time you act like a man. It's time you act like a woman. It's time you go a little bit further. You make some right decisions. And sometimes in the gospel message, that's what we need to do. Sometimes we come alongside a, a young Christ follower, or maybe even one a little bit further along. We put our arm around him and say, you know what? Your pornography addiction it's going to destroy your life. It's going to destroy your marriage. We need to memorize some scriptures. We need to have some accountability. We need to get rid of your electronic device. We need to do whatever it takes to get right in this area. Sometimes that's the way it, it goes. When we push somebody along to take the next step in their relationship with Jesus Christ. I remember many, many years ago, I had a young family and I had taken all my doctoral courses and I was writing my dissertation. And that meant that on my day off for a year, year and a half, I would go over to my office and I would write my dissertation and sometimes a few more hours on Saturday. And, and I got to thinking, this is nuts. I got a young family, a young wife, young children. I got a full-time job. This is nuts. And so I decided I was going to stop. And then I called my dad. Big mistake. <laughs> He's here today, so I got to tell the truth. And I told him I was going to stop, and he mentioned somebody, a mutual acquaintance their age, a guy who had taken all his doctoral courses but didn't write his dissertation, and he had always regretted it. And in a polite dad sort of way, he kind of kicked me in my pants and said, get writing. And so I did. That's what we do for one another. 
That's what we do for one another. Cain asked the question of Abel or of God about Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. Yes, we are our brother's keeper. So sometimes to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel means that we're like that nursing mother. Sometimes it's like that father who comes along and says, hey, we got to make some good decisions now. We got to advance ourselves. And we got to walk for an audience of one, not for an audience of many. Easy Eddie wanted to give his son a good name. And his son went on to be an American hero. Paul knows we already have a good name, Christ follower, if we believed in Christ. But he's talking to us as sons and daughters and how we ought to walk in a manner worthy of the Son. So what will that mean in your life? What will it mean in mine? To live for an audience of one, not many, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the First Thessalonians epistle and what we can glean from it in the coming two or three months. And we pray, Father, that we would learn a lot, but not just for head knowledge, but for life transformation. Speak to our hearts, speak to our lives, transform us. Give us opportunities to proclaim the hope that is within us, salvation by faith in Christ alone, the gospel. And to nurture new believers and even more mature believers to take the next step in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would do this in and through us for your glory. And keep us from being self-pleasers. Help us to be pleasers of you. In the name of Christ, amen.